This is Womanhood. Welcome to Womanhood, a podcast created to empower and give voice to all women's experiences, which are typically stigmatized and silenced in society. I'm your host, Mimi Healy. Today, I'm speaking with Liz Lenz, who is a journalist, author, mother, woman, all around just wonderful human. Liz is the author of her first book called Godland, which came out last year. And now her second book, which came out in August, is called Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. One review of the book by Jessica Valenti reads, Liz Lenz is brilliant. And if you haven't ordered her book yet, what are you even doing with your life? I couldn't agree more. Everyone go out, order Belabored, buy it for a friend, go support your local bookstore. Liz is really phenomenal. The sound quality of this episode is not the best. I was sitting in the car and you might hear some cars go by in the background or a bit of scratchiness in the recording, but thank you so much for listening. first question I always ask guests um, just because this podcast is called womanhood and I like to focus on like each woman's experience of that uh, is what do you love about being a woman or what do you value or cherish about identifying with the experience of womanhood I love the friendships Mm -hmm. I I think I think the friendships that you get to make as a woman are so beautiful and so life affirming. You know, I have these two friends who I've been friends with for 20 years now and so many other friends. And I don't think any of the writing or the work that I have been able to do would be possible without my friendship. And I do think it's like a very uniquely female thing because we you know we police male emotions and expressions of their emotions so much in our society that I think men have a really hard time like forming those intense long-lasting friendships of course you know Mm -hmm. hashtag not all men but um uh, but I I do I do think you know the lady group text is Mm -hmm. um, is truly the best part of my life and my friends are 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 really, I think, my only redeeming qualities sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. So can you tell me just like to begin and get some background how you became a writer and, you know, why and like a bit about growing up? You spoke a lot about um, like your religious upbringing in the book um, and kind of like a bit about being a writer. But yeah, if you can just kind of like go into more about that 
Yeah, so I grew up the second oldest of eight children. We were homeschooled and evangelical. We lived in Texas for the better part of my childhood. We moved when I was about 13 um, to South Dakota. So I grew up in this very small world of my siblings and our church. And I, you know, like, I mean, like so many, so many isolated kids I read a lot I read a lot that like the story is that um my mom was teaching my older sister to read and I would sit next to them during the lessons and I picked up on it and I was reading at the age of three and have just been um like a voracious reader ever since but I didn't you know as as a kid I was always writing little books I was always telling little stories but being a writer wasn't something that was really in my radar. It, it never occurred to me that was something that like a normal person could do. For the longest time, I was going to be a lawyer, just like mm. my father. Um, you know, and, and again, like in the world I grew up in, nobody, nobody was a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't hang out with the riffraff. So, um, it actually literally never occurred to me until high school when I had a teacher, we had to do these daily writing assignments and I had to miss school one day because of this like spring break mishap with my parents. They'd lock themselves out of like the house oh. on a spring break trip and like we came back like late Sunday night and school was supposed to start Monday we couldn't get into the house and like me and my brother were like trying to like break <laughs> into the home and we couldn't do it and so then my parents had to like take us to a hotel oh and, and then I ended up being like because of all of that like I was just like well I, I missed half a day of school and so I missed turning an assignment and so I wrote the whole story as an assignment mm. and the teacher um Mr. Olson uh at Eden Prairie High School was like this is really funny you used to be a writer and I was like no sir I'm going to be a lawyer and that's what I thought <laughs> I was gonna be for um I mean all of college that was my plan but um and I talk about this a little in the book but the there was um one of my sisters was a victim of sexual assault Mm -hmm. and that came out my senior year of college right when I was supposed to be taking the GREs and the LSATs and it that that destroyed my life um Mm -hmm. and I didn't show I mean I I sobbed through the GREs Mm -hmm. didn't show up for the LSATs um and then right after that I got engaged and I thought well I'll figure this out maybe maybe Mm -hmm. I'll I'll work in marketing or something and so um and then my I, I had been writing for the the college newspaper at the time and and it you know, my, my columns were certainly getting a reaction. So I was like, well, maybe Mr. Olson was right. Maybe I can be a writer since I can't, can't get into grad school now. And I did apply. Like there was a good, like two years after I got married where I was applying to grad schools and getting rejected by literally everyone all the time. I couldn't get in for anything. Um, (laughs) So I kind of became a writer through failure. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, though. Like, that's awesome. I feel like the best things happen that way. What inspired you to write Belabored? So I, the, this book was 
born of a series of essays I did for the website Jezebel. Mm-hmm. I um, I was a young mother, or, or my kids were young. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how young I was, but um, but I think younger than a, a lot of uh, the most women are when they start having kids, I think statistically. Um, and so I, I I was really struggling with bodily autonomy and struggling to understand how, you know, I came out of this conservative evangelical background and I thought I had escaped it. You know, I thought mm-hmm. I was this free woman. I thought feminism had worked, everything was great. And yet here I was, a mother suddenly bound by those rules you know mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't just medicine it was you know i would log on to um you know the bump.com and like the stories you know their top article would be how to dress now that you're a mom mm-hmm. and it'd be like well you gotta dress modestly i'm like literally why i yeah. got here because i had sex you think i'm supposed to now walk around pretending like i don't slut it up every once in a while like what the hell <laughs> and so i and you know i also love i also love weird stories i also love you know um i, I mean who doesn't that's mm-hmm. not like a unique thing but um you know, I one of my favorite things to do is just to, you know, dig through um, books like old medical textbooks or, mm-hmm. you know, old, old myths and stories and just and I was reading those. And because of the place where I was, I was seeing pregnancy and women's autonomy well, in bodily autonomy. I shouldn't even just make it a woman issue bodily autonomy in everything Mm -hmm. and I wanted to parse it out because that's how I processed I I processed things through stories so I started writing this series of essays on Jezebel that was edited by Gia Tolentino who is an incredible amazing writer yes and so I um so there was um there was one essay called um about about lithopedian babies where babies can like literally turn to stone in a woman's body and Mm. it's and I you know I wrote an essay about like grief and and miscarriage and Mm. and and also dealing with this actual medical thing that happens and how we understand women's bodies and that did really well and at the time I I had an agent and we were trying to sell a completely different book. And one of the editors we reached out to, Remy Colley, who's the editor of this book, she had said, she's like, you know what? The book that you wrote was about like religion and womanhood. And she was like, I can't, I can't sell that to my, my publishing house. She's like, but this Lithopedian article, these Mm -hmm. essays that you're writing, she's like, there's a book there. And so um, that's how, that's kind of how the book came to be. And then later when I sat down to write it, I was a completely different type of mother. Like I'd gotten divorced, which I write about in my first book. And I also write about it in this book. And so I remember going back to Remy and being like, the book I sold is not the book I can write. And I almost (laughs) bought my way out of the book contract because I'd gotten a very small advance. And so I was like, maybe I just shouldn't write this. I don't know how to do this anymore. And she sat mm-hmm. down with me and helped me refigure out the structure of the book. And that's how it got divided up into um, the four 
the four trimesters Mm. and that's how we came up with this new structure of the book because she was like no I think you should write through this Mm. Um, because this is the experience of women right like this is this is something that needs to be put down also I I'm sure she just really wanted (laughs) me to just shut up and turn in the book (laughs) so that's a very long answer on how that book came to be but it, it has had kind of a chaotic history I mean, it makes sense because I found when reading the book that it's um, like part memoir, part research, part like medical history or just history in general. Um, You know, like there's just so many parts of it that are like deeply personal and deeply relatable as a woman or just any human who's been through heartbreak or just through like any bodily you know, confusion. I mean, anyone can relate to it, but there's also, like, so much of it that I was reading, and I was like, wow, this is so kind of, like, research-heavy in such a delightful way that, like, it's easy to read, but how did you go about, um, you know, like, researching it and finding all these different stories and things? Like, did that take you just years and years and years, or was it, like, a really smooth process? No, oh no. Um, I, I, you know, I was writing two books at the same time because my first book, Godland, came out last year, mm-hmm. and then this one was actually supposed to come out in the in the spring in May, uh, but I didn't turn it in on time. <laughs> so it wasn't the pandemic; it was me. It was me bailing as a writer. But I, no. I, um, I was actually working on both books simultaneously. So while I was out researching Godland, I was going, I was driving around the Midwest, talking, going to small churches, talking to faith leaders, trying to talk about how um, politics and religion are changing our political landscape. I was also mm-hmm. reading stacks and stacks of books for, um, for Belabored. I was, you know, I was reading wow. um, a lot of beautiful uh, scholarly research on like the ultrasound and images and communication and women's bodily autonomy and like you know racism and concepts of motherhood and purity I was reading and a lot of these books are cited in the end and Mm -hmm. I was just consuming all these narratives while while writing and researching this book so that when I sat down to write write belabored it was um you and I also had some trips planned for belabored too where I was like well I have to go somewhere I have to talk to people um because I think one of my strengths as a writer and I I truly believe all writing is better when you can place it in scene and Mm -hmm. place it in moment and place it in story so you know my my editor was encouraging me she's like this is you know you have to go she's like go to Philadelphia you know go Mm -hmm. to the Mütter Museum um and uh and I think so that I, yes. And so that when I would sit down to write this book, it felt like I was, um, it felt like I was like peeling my skin off. Mm. (laughs) It was really hard. The first book I wrote it kind of in a a frenzy of basically one month I sat down, I had a, uh, I had a residency and I had just left my marriage and I had two small children and I was like, this is the only time I can write this book. So I wrote it in this like fevered frenzy of a month and that, but the labored came, came out in, you know, between 10 PM and 2 AM. And, um, and 
Yeah, the struggle is how do you place the research into a context that makes it vivid for people? And I think that that answer was always come back to story. I truly believe about writing that it's like, like the more specific you can make it, the more, uh, the more you open it up to other people, you mm-hmm. know? And so I, I was always trying to negotiate. I want this book to be, I want other people to be able to access this book. I want fathers to be able to read this. I want women who don't have children and never want to have children to read this book. You know, I want, I want LGBTQ parents to feel like they can access this book and Mm -hmm. so that to me was always like okay you acknowledge your own biases and then you tell the story of your body and I do talk about this a little bit but I had heard Maggie um Nelson I was gonna say Maggie Mm. Smith but that's the actress (laughs) (laughs) different people but I had heard Maggie Nelson say something that every story is the story of a body and that's what I just kept coming back to was like this is not just some abstract abstruse thing this is literally the story that is being written on our skin inside our bodies this is our lived experience so so I was always trying to render that fleshy reality onto the page in the most exciting way possible. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about how you speak a lot about how like America sees um, women as these really pure, uh, you know, like virginal type creatures but then of course as you were saying earlier like you have to have sex to get to be a mother um and you also write a lot about how like food and gaining weight in pregnancy kind of relates to this and like the bodily image and um I guess I was wondering if we could talk about like what you saw in your like research of what people found in like being a mother and this idea of purity and like how those two relate does that make sense sorry yeah that makes so much sense and and I will say there is more than one way to becoming a parent than through sex Uh, and many parents uh you know they adopt they use in vitro but it is very common right to Mm. to have sex like that's that's a a more common experience uh, of parenthood although we should leave space for other experiences of parenthood Mm -hmm. and um I uh yeah I think what I what I learned so I grew up in purity culture where it was very much the evangelical insistence that I do not have sex before marriage because I need to keep my body and my heart pure and there's this like very famous example that I mean people are probably still even using in schools where they take a piece of tape and they're like you, you the woman is the tape and then they'll stick the piece of tape to somebody's skin and then pull it off and so you can see like the oils and stuff on the tape and they're like every time you touch someone something mm is left on you and it's so upsetting because it's like it gives this idea that you not the man right Mm -hmm. even now even in 2020 that you are somehow you as the woman are somehow left 
impure, mm. unclean by by even just romantic attachments, physical attachments. I mean, you don't even have to. I mean, you go deep into purity culture. They're not even talking sex. They're talking kissing or holding mm. hands at this point. And you're like, good lord. <laughs> but, um, but that's still a very real thing in America, even if we don't want to grapple with it. But it is literally influencing uh, abstinence-only education in our schools, so we need to grapple with it. But that was my experience with purity culture. And in the process of re- researching the book, I read a lot of really smart academics who were connecting that to these ideas of racial purity. And that the reason, one of the motivating factors of controlling what happens between a woman's legs is controlling paternity and controlling race Mm. and controlling, you know, that aspect of it. And so it was so eye-opening to connect the dots from my lived experience with purity culture to the conversations we're having now about who gets to be an American and who Mm. even gets to be a mother. Because something I come back to again and again in the book is, you know, look for stock photo images of mothers. You know, there's very few black mothers. There's very few single mothers. There's very few, you know, uh, Latino mothers, mm-hmm. queer mothers, we have this idea of motherhood as this white, pure, virginal thing. And that is about racism. And that is about controlling who gets to be the mother. There is a story that just came out yesterday about forced hysterectomies at ICE detention centers <gasps> oh, on the God. border. Oh, and God. once again, this is something happening in 2020 where we are we are forcibly sterilizing brown women because we do not think they should be mothers. Meanwhile, back in Iowa, we're literally forcing white women mm. to have children by revoking access to birth control and mm-hmm. abortion. The forced hysterectomies that Liz is referring to came out in a report published by the American Civil Liberties Union saying that a whistleblower who is a nurse at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia reported that many women have received forced and coerced hysterectomies and that many of the women who received them didn't appear to understand why. There are countless number of atrocities happening at ICE detention centers all around America and this is just another in a long long list of pure torture to humans and another attack on maternal rights and women's rights. So this is not an accident and these ideas of purity are so damaging and they influence so many aspects of our policy and so that's why I really wanted to grapple with that because I wanted to crack this I want to crack the case open and say this isn't just this isn't just a fun story about purity rings this is a story about our politics this is a story about who gets an abortion who doesn't who gets forcibly sterilized who doesn't who is allowed to be a mother in in portland you know there was that mm-hmm. wall of moms that came out yeah. it was mostly white moms but guess what there were mothers there were mothers out there protesting they're, they were just black mothers mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but but 
when the press gets excited about a mom, it has happens to be a wall of white moms. And I do know the organizer of that wall of moms, I believe, identifies as Latinx. Um, so, you know, it is more, more competent, but it is about, you know, the appearance of, of whiteness and who gets to have that mantle of motherhood and mm-hmm. who doesn't. Again, Kellyanne Conway using her motherhood as an excuse to escape from this atrocious moral mess she's made of American politics. Mm. Meanwhile, ICE detention centers are forcibly sterilizing brown mothers. So who gets to be a mother? Yeah. And that all connects to our ideas of purity. Yeah, definitely. And especially um, how you're talking about, you know, like who gets to be a mother and who gets to be a good mother too. Like good yes. mothers are so often not low income, not fat, not incarcerated, not indigenous, not black, like not people of color. And um, I really loved how you wrote about that. And um, I actually volunteered at a women's prison for three years um, throughout college in New York and worked with mothers there. And um, I thought you did a really amazing job just in like my limited experience of seeing, you know, that one like group of mothers in a prison, but um, of, you know, portraying that we never hear about that kind of mother and it's not like it doesn't happen or even yeah like these ice uh detained mothers or people giving birth in detention centers and prisons and things like that um you know it's I think you did a great job of showing and belabored that it's not a coincidence this is all incredibly tied to politics purity how people see women and um I was actually wondering if we could like talk a little bit more about the larger culture of misogyny really affects pregnancy in America and how like women are you know this there's this really narrow definition of a mother that's so rooted in not only like race and politics but misogyny which is also part of politics but (laughs) if we could talk a bit more about that too I, um, yeah, I think there is, there's this idea, right, that we are now so empowered as women or as, as uh, mothers, and I think all you have to do is give birth, um, or I, you don't even have to give birth, all you have to do is go into a doctor as a woman and say, I have pain, mm-hmm. you know, um, women who have endometriosis have to go to 10 doctors on average before they finally get an endometriosis diagnosis. So literally when, when women go and talk about their bodies to medical professionals, we are not given autonomy. We are not Mm -hmm. believed, you know, and this is borne out by statistics time and time again. Women are not believed when they go in to talk about their pain. Black women are believed even less, you know, Mm -hmm. all those studies of doctors saying they think black people have higher pain tolerance. That Mm -hmm. is racist myth rooted in slavery. Um, when, when, When doctors did medical experiments on enslaved people and didn't give them any sort of sedative. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, so yes, so the, these ideas that somehow we could separate medicine, the purely scientific away from misogyny is just a lie because your, your autonomy as a human being is not respected when you go in to give birth. It is absolutely ridiculous that you have, that women who are giving birth 
people who are giving birth go in and you have to have like you have to not only have a doctor and nurses there but if you want your birth plan respected you have to have a doula Mm. and that's a lot of money also you know doulas were and midwives were initially black women immigrant Mm -hmm. women of color who are now like and now it's like something that only rich white women can afford so there's a problem there but the um you can't birthplace birth plan your way out of misogyny in america you know so many women time and time again would come to me and say you know i had this plan this is what i wanted i went in to give birth and it wasn't respected Mm. I found myself, you know, being forced out of a C-section or forced into a situation I didn't want. And and there's a lot of trauma. So I think the story of women's bodies is a story of misogyny. And again, you don't have to give birth to understand that. You just mm. have to be a woman who's had pain. Yeah. And then you and then you understand the ways in which massage in which you are not listened to and which you're, we are constantly gaslit about our experiences. And um and I think it's so pervasive not just in medical communities, but in in the very underlying fabric of what we base our medicine on, the studies we base our medicine on, the mm-hmm. experience of um, the politics, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's all about we don't let women have access to birth control or go to an abortion clinic because we don't trust a woman's going to make the right choice for herself. I, I mean, listen. All you have to do is listen into a session of the Iowa legislature, and it's just white man after white man grandstanding on top of a woman's body. So if you ever need a reminder that misogyny exists, just go to Des Moines and start listening to some of these elected leaders. I'm sure it happens in every state. I just happen to get a front row seat here in Iowa because of my job, and it is, it's truly, uh, it's disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is disgusting. I mean, I'm from North Carolina, so I can relate. There's definitely a lot of uh, powerful white males who are making yes. decisions for women's bodies. Um, oh, uh, oh, Ted Cruz the other day tweeting yeah. that, oh, pregnancy or birth is not dangerous. Sir, sir <laughs> we, have, we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in industrialized nations birth is scary as hell for women is scarier than hell for black women and you know you're also using birth to forcibly give hysterectomies to immigrants so don't Mm -hmm. tell me birth isn't dangerous and then if you make it out alive yeah the recovery the journal will never be the same not ever. <laughs> yeah. And then all that comes after that, like taking care of a literal human, like raising uh, yes, a person. Exactly. And and it's not just the experience of raising a person, it's the experience of raising a person in America where you don't get paid maternity leave, mm. where you where you take a hit. Women take a hit and you if you have a baby in america you're taking a hit in your pay statistically that's just what happens mm-hmm. men might even get bumps in their pays because you know their father's now so they have to take care of their family i mean talk about misogyny just look at who pays who for what and it's 
mothers dropping out of the workforce all the time, especially now mm. in a pandemic, and oh. also talk about misogyny. You know how how many how many big uh, publications devote a lot of time to parenting issues or reproductive rights issues. These are not just women's issues, but because of our misogynistic culture, we view them as oh, yeah. that, that's just a niche women's issue. Parenting is just like this niche. Literally, yeah. this is the foundation of our economy. If women stopped having babies, you wouldn't have a taxable base. The uterus is too big to fail. So stop thinking of it as a niche problem. But again, that's just the way we view it. And that's, you know, and that is once again misogyny. Sorry, I just ranted for a little bit. No, do not apologize, please. Um, I mean, I'm absolutely loving it and everything you're saying. I'm Like, I wish you could see me. I'm just, like, shaking my head, like, constantly, like, sitting here in this car, just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, totally. It's, I mean, it's also infuriating. So rant away. It makes me want to, like, rant constantly. Um you know, like, I'm sure writing this book was an emotional roller coaster in that way. And I felt that way reading it, like getting super angry and super sad. And then, you know, reading your personal stories and feeling like I can relate and then going back to being angry again and things. Um, but uh, so, like, what you were saying, everything's related that we've been talking about. But Something that I was really fascinated by that you wrote about was this like perfect image of motherhood and how when you're pregnant, people are so incredibly accommodating and kind and like going out of their way to help you. And then as soon as a mother gives birth, there's like this very clear, you know, uh, divide between the baby and the mother and then the care for both and like lack of you know adequate care for both and things like that um can you just tell me more about that and if you've actually seen anything you know like since I don't know if you've been with like social distancing and everything and quarantining if you've been seeing a lot of uh work and like how how the pandemic's affected mothers but if you could like talk a little bit more to that if you've seen any of that during coronavirus oh yeah so I'll I'll talk about the first part of your question first about how you know once and that's why I felt like it was important to have that fourth trimester in the book because I needed to talk about okay now that you've had this baby what then and Mm. so many you know so many birth stories so many birth narratives just stop like you give it you give birth that's it happily ever after would really oh this story has just begun because in America a woman gets one postpartum checkup while the baby has to go in you know pretty regularly um monthly well I think gosh every couple weeks at first and then monthly after my oldest is nine it's been a while Um, (laughs) but you know and then you and then as a woman you get that one six-week checkup and 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 your body hasn't you haven't even had time to adjust to the slap in the face of what birth was or you haven't even had time to recover and they're like okay well now you can have sex and you're like oh god no thank you and so I mean there there is like yeah and and insurance pays for one right Mm -hmm. like you go in for more you're on the hook but insurance pays for it for um, 
differently. So I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's like a very clear indicator of who we begin to value in this equation. And, and so many women in talking for this book said, I found my power when I suddenly was given power because I was pregnant, because I had a life within me. Mm. And that kind of gave me leverage. And it's really sad to me that there are so many women who didn't feel empowered on their own behalf until they had to start speaking out on yeah. behalf of the of the of the fetus within them and so uh you know but other women have also found it completely disempowering because they saw how it wasn't about them it was about mm. the actual baby and or the actual fetus inside of them so there is this there is this real um dividing line of once that baby's out that you know so many women have had stories and people should read thick by tracy tressie mcmillan cotton where mm-hmm. she talks about her birth story and how she wasn't listened to and how she almost died serena williams serena williams yeah you know they wouldn't listen to her and she almost died okay if you're like what happened to serena williams then you can listen to our last episode with Dr. Kudasia, and we talk about what happened and why it's so important to advocate for your own health care. I think we need to point out both black women. So again, whatever problems we point out, of course, are compounded um, for black women in America, because that's our racism. Mm-hmm. But um you know, but the, yes, that the, the trouble has only just begun because in so many ways, a woman's identity then get, becomes subsumed by motherhood. And in some ways, it's, it's great to be a mother. Like, I love being the mother of my children, but I also am more than that. And it, it's about how we define identity. Mm-hmm. And so many women in talking to me were like, well, I feel like my identity is defined because I choose not to have children or I cannot have children through whatever reasons. And so now I'm defined by my childlessness. And then mm. so many women are like, well, now I'm defined by my motherhood. <laughs> and in the in the book, I quote Alyssa Mastromonaco, who is wonderful, and she said, you're fucked either way. Like, you, yeah. because we, we define a woman's identity by her use or not use or the status of her uterus when a woman's creative capital and potential is so much more than what she does with her body. And this brings me to the second part of your question is the pandemic, because this pandemic and this recession is a recession for women. This is not hitting all people equally. This is hitting women hard because women are in its studies and studies are just are bearing this out. Um, the New York Times had a wonderful parenting section. I understand they're going to be dialing it back now, but they were, you know, cranking out story after story, showing study after study, saying women are home with their children in a home with a partner, nine times out of ten a man. And the women are the ones doing the homeschooling. The women are the ones still trying to do their jobs, still doing the housework, still cooking. Mm -hmm. And the women are the ones who are too busy to even scream out for help. And now we're going 
going into a new school year, women are being forced out of the workplace. Or, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and so many women are going to say, no, I made a choice, I made a choice. You didn't make a choice. If mm-hmm. you were getting equal support, that's not a choice. And stop calling it a choice. When you're forced out because you and your partner look at income and say, well, I make less. You make less because you are a woman in the first place. You make 70 cents to a male dollar. And now you make less because you're a mother. And now you're going to make even less because you're being forced to drop out of the, the workforce. This, These are not choices. This is not a choice. And stop pretending that it is. And if you're a rich white woman who's like, no, I made a choice. It was a choice. Okay, great for you. But for the rest of us, this mm. is not a choice. You are forced out. Of, and, and I think that's what we're going to continue to see is women being forced out of the workforce. And this, what we lose when there are no women in the workforce, when we don't have women scientists, when we don't have women doctors, when we don't have women politicians, there's a politician in California who had to drag her newborn baby in to vote because they wouldn't give her a voting exemption. Mm -hmm. You know, and good on her because she refuses to be forced out. But for every woman who forces her way back in, every mother who does, there's another woman who's being forced out, Mm -hmm. who who cannot speak up for herself. And that's why the point of this book was not to tell women to lean in or try harder or make a better birth plan, but was to look at the systems that continually push us down and say, we have to stop telling women to pull themselves up by their bootstraps Mm. because you can't, you can't, you can't bootstrap yourself out of this if there's a boot on your neck. So we have to start changing our culture. We have to start changing our laws. And we have to, in our individual lives, refuse to be forced out of the places where we have creative capital and creative potential. And it is so hard because these are our children who are sitting in front of their Zoom classrooms. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, Lord knows your partner. I hope he's doing something. Yeah. Mm. And if he's not, I have some words. Um, <laughs> some words mm-hmm. for that situation. And it is hard to fight against a system that is continually oppressing you. You can't individual your choice way choice your way out of it. So we have to start electing women. We have to start voting. We have to start seeing how we can bring this system down. would you like to share with women if you have any that hasn't been said <laughs> I think my advice is one divorce him no just maybe. I mean kind of but also not really but um my my other piece of advice is that again you can't lean in your way out of this and that we need to start advocating for laws and policies that don't just benefit us but benefit America writ large. I think right now, you know, people are like, well, I'm just going to pull my kids out to homeschool them or do whatever. And we we can't do that. We -hmm. cannot do that. We have to hold the line. Um, Speaking of myself as a middle-class white woman, we have a lot of power and historically we have used it to oppress Mm 
We have used it to gut our public school systems. We have used it to, you know, um, uh, to add again advocate for changes that only benefit other mm-hmm. white women. We need to start being more intersectional, and I think now is the perfect time to do that. And we do it by voting. We do it by calling the people who are elected and uh and we also do it by starting to help out organizations that um advocate for reproductive justice for Mm -hmm. all people and so those are some great ways so that's that's my plan we don't need a birth plan we need a rebirth america plan Mm -hmm. and i think we can do it and i think our voices are a lot more powerful than uh, we've been made to believe I really appreciate and thank you for writing this book and using your voice in this way. Um, Thank you so much for having me on and for talking and for having such smart, wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. You can find her on Instagram at Liz Lenz, on Twitter at Liz L. Please don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and drop a comment telling me why you are enjoying the podcast. I'll see you in two weeks. Womanhood was created and produced by Mimi Healy with original sound design by Matthew Peary.